0: We are not relenting. We are, we are still counting that victory will come. Doesn't matter how long it will take. It will go to history that gave won the case, even if they don't implement. The whole world knows that. They Ogier won the case. will continue speaking about it, advocating about it, and telling the government to implement this Ogier case. This has not killed our spirit.
1: Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining me as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different guests. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Daniel Kobe. Daniel is the founder and executive director of the Ogiek People's Development Program, which is a Kenyan NGO working to secure human and land rights for the indigenous Ogiek community, as well as other indigenous peoples across Kenya and Africa. Daniel represents Indigenous Peoples under the umbrella of the International Indigenous Forum for Biodiversity and the Collaborative Partnership for Wildlife Management set by the Convention of Biological Diversity. Daniel has been promoting the restoration of the Mao forest complex through Ogiek community involvement as a forest-dwelling, hunter-gathering community. Daniel helped lead the Ogiek to winning an eight-year legal battle over land and human rights abuses. At the African Court on Human and People's Rights in 2017. But four years later, the Ogie community are still waiting for the implementation of that legal judgment. So, Daniel, thank you for joining me today. It's an honor to speak with you. And thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Salah.
1: Thank you. Wonderful. I know you grew up in the Mao Forest Complex. Could you tell us a bit about the experiences you had growing up, which led you to you know, want to and also need to defend the rights of the Ogiek people? How did it all begin?
0: Thank you. It's a long story, Sawa, but uh, let me try in, in a nutshell to summarize I was born uh, in early 70s in, in, in Mao Forest Complex in a place called Sogo in Narok County, which is within the Mao Forest Complex. In fact, Sogo is a, is a place where the gay community in a community or a clan called Kipchormoni. This particular uh, community or clan are the ones who are mostly between the forest and the areas where the Maasai people are staying in parts of, of Maasai Mao. So as I was born, uh, I grew up in the forest uh, with hunting and gathering. And uh, as one of the members of the community, I was born. I'm the sixth born, born out of the seven of us in, in the family. And um, my late father, who passed on 2003, is the one who introduced us to the strong ethics of hunting and also introduced us to go to school. I used to go to school, which is around eight kilometers or rather four kilometers to and fro, making eight, and um, crossing two rivers to go to the school, which was we were the first to go to school that was in early 1978 and uh, during that time as a young boy, I grew up knowing that the whole forest belongs to the Oge community. But after some time we realized that it is no longer belongs to the Oge community. it belongs to other people who are agriculturists. These people, when they came, they found that this place is very fertile, and this actually caused a lot of influx of other communities coming to Mao. And as I grew up, there was one thing which made me to feel like I think we need to be rather released free, or rather to to, to come out of the poor or lack of recognition by other communities. One, they used to call Ogye Dorobos, and we hated that name. But the Maasai community call Dorobo, meaning poor people without cattle. The people who depend on dead meat to eat or to do anything. So they looked at us as very uncivilized, very barbaric in nature. So in, in that way it made me to feel like why are we be called Why why are these people looking down upon us? And this this made me as I grew up, I when I went to school, I went to secondary school in Kisi, came and I had a chance. The most interesting part is that Somebody helped me to go and to go to India to study for four years and then when I came back that is when now we started a movement. One of the issues in early nineties we started saying, No, we are not the robots, we are a geek. That is when now everybody else started realize that we are not the robots, we are a geek. And one other thing is that we told the world we are not the robots, we are a and we have to be given respect. And during that time, parts of Mao, that's an eastern Mao, Marishoni, Nesuit, part of southwest Mao, part of the other areas where Ogiek are staying, Londiani, Kipkurere, and the rest, the Ogiek are, or are being evicted from their land. And, and that made me to feel like we need Ogiek to be respected. The violations which Ogiek are undergoing is uncalled for. They need respect. They need a home like other Kenyans. And and this made us now to start some Ogiek Welfare Association. And then there was another one called Ogiek Welfare Council. And in 1999, I founded Ogiek People's Development Programme. And uh, by 2001, it got registered as a non-governmental organization in Kenya. And that is now we started the movement of struggling and fighting for the rights of Ogiek, basically about recognition and their land rights. So that is now when now early 90s, again, some of the Ogiek communities went to court and saying, if the land belongs to Ogiek, why are communities are coming and taking up the land, big chunk of land, while Ogiek is being given a small land and it is their land, and other communities who are coming are being, being big lands or big parcel of land, and, and, and they seem to be enjoying and having more authority and leadership, which Ogiek do not have. That time, we do not have even chiefs. I think in, only in early 1970s and early 80s is when we had a chief in so on the Sena. That Sena became a chief and then he retired. We never had another Ogieg until another one was, was appointed. And then later on, he passed on. Until then, it took another many years before we had other Ogieg chiefs. But for 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 the political wing, the Ogieg have never had a chance. They have only nominated MCAs recently. We had one who became a senator, nominated senator, but is being thrown out again because of political inclinations.
1: Thank you for sharing that, that trajectory. So in terms of the historical context of, as you say, this journey from the 70s, 80s, 90s, starting the movement. Maybe it would be helpful for the listeners just a little bit. Could you maybe share also about how the colonial impacts have resonated through the years in terms of the, the evictions that are happening or, you know, how Indigenous communities are being treated?
0: I can say the troubles we have now originated from the colonial times because the Okia community were being taken as it is a small minority Indigenous community. And they felt that these people should not be treated like other communities, but they should be treated like second-hand people who should be actually assimilated to the Kalenji, to the Maasai, or to the Kikuyu community. And, and actually, in early 1933 and early 40s, they were told they should go to a place called Bomet, where they could be actually assimilated to the Kipsikis community. Some of them in the process were thrown there. But in the, in, in, in the process, they came back to Mao because they died of dysentery, other very terrible diseases in tropical area areas because they were a bit dry areas and they were in a colder environment and they went to hot environment. And many of them died because of the diseases. And this made many of the community to come back to Mao. And they were not given reserves or areas like the Masai were given their areas in 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 Narok in Kajado. The Kikuyus were given in Kiampu, and uh, the Nyeri Muranga and the other areas. The Luo's were given in Siaya uh, Migori um, Kisumu Kisumu and other areas. The Gipsikis were given in Bomet, in Kericho. The Tugen's every in Baringo and all the other communities got a chance of land after the colonial government or the distribution after nineteen sixty three. They got a chance in their homes and they were given their lands, but the OG were not given their lands. Instead, they continued being told you should be part of these other communities. One of the main reasons was that they were in the so called White Islands, where we have Ugaton University, we have the, other very important areas in this country. And and, and in the process the, the, the white community said, I think these people is immense. They should be thrown out so that they pave way for agricultural work and other issues within Mao, which has resonated again over time. The same land, they have been evicted. They've been evicted and, and being told that we are doing it for conservation purpose. So we, we it, it is a repeat in a different different dimension whereby they are being evicted for conservation. During the colonial government was being evicted to pave way for agriculture, for for planting of of, of wheat and other crops. And then during even the earlier 80s and 90s, they were also having what we call tea plantation, what we call tea zones, where they wanted big men and women in this country were amassing uh, massive land for, for planting tea and other crops in the expense of the Ogie community. So so this setup uh, uh, has been a repeat, mm-hmm. and, and this violation has been a repeat. And actually, as we were doing, even before we went to the African Court or African Commission, there's been a mass, we, we contacted a lot of research, and it became very clear that the Ogie were massively violated by both the colonial and the post-colonial government, and even the current uh, government, sorry to say, Because they have delayed, even after us winning the court, they could still cannot implement the case for the last four years.
1: Yes, yes, very important. And so I would love to speak about that. But before we go there, just to clarify, as you say, this excuse of, oh, for conservation reasons, it's problematic because the Ogiek community are caretakers of the forest, of the land. So could you speak to us a bit about that frustration in terms of not being able to have access to your traditional lands, which you are caretakers of, for this excuse of, oh, for conservation reasons, we cannot uh, allow access?
0: It is true we are conservationists by nature. Forest and gate are one and the same thing. This is where we, we, we call it our supermarket. This is where we, we have everything. We get our medicine, we get our food, we get our shelter. We get everything in the forest. And, and we protect same forest. We cannot cut trees which are meant for doing ceremonies because they, 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 they were meant to, to protect or to be used only for ceremonies. We could not cut trees which are not dry. We, we need to wait for them to dry up so that we can cut them for fire or for doing any other thing, any other domestic work. And, and we are, the government. Give us a chance. We can take care of these forests. We can use the knowledge and the know-how which we have in protecting and ensuring that more forest complex is protected, not only for the community, but for all Kenyans and even for the whole of Africa. Because the water which has the source in, in more forests goes up to Lake Victoria and then finally to River Nile, which takes care of other countries within of Africa, especially on the northern side of Africa. So, so the, the, the kind of work and the strength of us protecting the forest seems to have been underestimated by the Kenyan government. And, and and we have proved that. And we have even tried using our organization, our Gate People's Development Program, in trying even some rehabilitation. And we have done over 200 acres in Kitunga and some parts of Kitunga and and, um, and and part of Nesuit, where we have already rehabilitation centers for, for forests to prove that we plant indigenous trees where we can have bees getting pollen for the sake of honey, because there have been a deterioration in in honey production for the last some over 20 years now. There's been a big decline because people have gone into either spraying or doing a lot of, using a lot of drugs, chemicals in the plants, which I'm not a scientist in nature. I think it interferes with, with the with the number of bees and dying of bees, and you know what bees can do for generations of or for humankind. So, so this setup has been very, very problematic, and it has not given us a gig the assurance that we have what we call uh, indigenous knowledge for conservation or our traditional knowledge for conservation, which it seems not to be respected. I wish they respect, and then the life of our forests will be reclaimed.
1: Right. Yes, yes. And so, as you mentioned earlier, you established the Ogiek People's Development Program. Can you tell us about the journey of starting it and how it has grown o- over the years in terms of as an organization?
0: Well, um, it started because there was a need for, for this organization, because that was the only way we could have a platform to do what we are, we are doing, even to be able to advocate for the rights of our Ogiek community. So it grew up as a small organization. It has grown now. I have a total of nine staff members, and we have also nine board members. We have, of course, most of them are young people, and they're from a gay community, of course, others from other communities. And and this has been able to help us to make a lot of networks. We have made networks with many organizations globally, one international land coalition, Minority Price Group International, uh, Indigenous Working Group for Indigenous Affairs in, in Denmark, Ugia and, and um, many, many other organizations, Learn is Live, we have organizations all over the world, and even here we have networks. Right now, OPDP is hosting what we call Handa Gatherers Forum. These are a forum which is um, hosting more than uh, eight communities where we are trying to support most of the organization to grow, and we are also helping them to, to be able to fight for their rights because they have similar challenges as we do. We have the Yaku, we have the Semwir, we we have the Ogiek of Mount Elgon, we have others in in in, in, in coastal region of Kenya. And all these communities are having challenges because historically they were hunter gatherers We are also hosting what you call and uh, indigenous uh, territorial rights for indigenous people in Africa, which we are hosting many countries um, being hosted by OPDP, we have Botswana, we have Cameroon, where we have the Khoisan people, the Bororo people of Cameroon, and the Pygmies of DRC Congo and Central Africa, the Battle of Burundi and the Battle of Uganda and and, and Rwanda. All these are organizations where indigenous peoples are, and my organization, we are working closely with them in doing projects related to land, and policy related in various countries. So, we are hosting it with the support of International Land Coalition and other organizations uh, locally. In fact, currently, even we have small support in partnership with Mandarized Group International under the uh, uh, European Union, which is under what we call SDG 3 and 4, that is education and health. All this has taken time, and building the such networks has not taken a short time. We have been in it for over 20 years now. Actually, this I think this will be our 20th year um, since uh, we started OPDP. So this is a very strong and now more reliable organization, helping and supporting not only our Ogi community but other communities in Africa and in Kenya.
1: And so, as you mentioned, these international partners and colleagues. In terms of the international solidarity you've experienced or just the importance of having these relationships, could you tell us a bit about your thoughts on the value of these kind of both regional partnerships in terms of the neighboring countries, but also international in terms of these global partners as well?
0: Excellent. Actually, most of them, they have been helping us advocating for the rights of the that The Ogiek should have their right after winning the case. They should be given back their land in Mao, especially those who have been evicted. Not all of them, of course, but those who have been evicted to get back their land, their ancestral land. And and and, and also when we have been meeting in the African Commission on Human and People's Rights in the Gambia, Banjul, the Gambia, we usually share our thoughts together. We shall make statements, even when we attend Permanent Forum for Indigenous Peoples in New York, we share our solidarity. Sometimes, even we sign petitions together, and and these have supported our unity as an as organization. Of course, others have been supporting us sometime with uh, resources uh, from external, and others have been supporting us technically in supporting. Others have given even pro uh, bono services in supporting their legal legal case over the years, and and this kind of network has given us the strength and the support as, as an organization and as a community, as an a community.
1: Wonderful. So coming now to what we spoke about earlier in terms of the eight-year-long legal battle that you and your colleagues and your partners face in terms of land and human rights abuses at the African Court on Human Rights and People's Rights. There's a lot to talk about there. Just in your own words, could you maybe tell us about that eight-year journey in terms of some of the few frustrations? I'm sure there were many, but at least a few of them in terms of what you think can be helpful for listeners to understand about that journey and what it took over those eight years. Uh,
0: Before I mention the eight years, There were several other years we were in Kenya, because before you go to the regional court, you should have exhausted domestic remedies. In this case, as as a gay community, we we had from 1997 to 2009, that's almost 12 years, we were in the Kenyan courts. And in those courts, we could go to court, and then we are told that the the file is missing, the, the, the judge is not present, or the magistrate did not appear. And then it is always deferred and deferred and deferred, and also that time also we had challenges of finance to support the case. So sometimes even the lawyers do not attend court, and all those frustration made us until we say now. When it reached 2009, we had already a case in what we call High Court case of zero or 635 of uh, of 97, which was ignored and not respected by the Ghanaian government. And in 2009, they gave a gave 14-day notice to be affected in the entire Mao complex. This actually arose a lot of interest to some of us, personally. I had to take up the, the issue, and I called one of my great friends, Dr. Koril Singwe, who was working by then with Center for Minds' Rights Development in Kenya, and he was representing an organization, uh, some communities called androids, who were also having similar challenges like Ogye. And they had already gone up to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. So we requested them now that the Ogye have the same problem. Can the government of Kenya, we had what we call uh, a coalition government by then, of Kebaki and Railo Dinga, that they can also listen to the Ogye community. Why evict them? How do you evict a, a people who have, have the ancestors buried in Mao for years and, and decades and, and centuries? And, and now you want them to leave in 14 days. It's not possible. So in the end, uh, that is when the commission wrote to the Ghanaian government. And uh, without us even knowing, the holding was stopped and, and uh, the eviction was stopped. I requested my community members, the leaders, all the top leaders in the entire of Mao. We were 50 of us. I requested them and said, now what do we do? The eviction is there. What do we do about the community? Do we go to the African court, African commission, or do we remain in Kenya again and pursue? Some say, no, let's remain. Others say, no, let's go. And then we had to, to take a vote. Out of 45 of us who were in that meeting there, 38 said, let's go to African court. And that is how we moved to the African commission on human and people's rights. And in that process, of course, we had challenges. We didn't have money. We didn't have a lot of this. That's when Minority Rights Group International joined in with their lawyer, Lucy Glory joining in as a legal person. And we started now to to follow up the issues in the in the, com- in the commission. In 2012, the commission, on their own wish, decided they have realized there's a lot of mass violation of the Ogi community. They decided... Last forward, the case to the African Commission uh, and the African Court, which now the, 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 the case moved from the African Commission to the African Court in Arusha, Tanzania. And then from then, some of us felt what, why it has happened. But finally, we realized it was very critical that the case go to the African Court. So we followed up. In the middle, of course, there are a lot of threats from outside people and those who didn't like what we are doing. Some were finding that uh, the uh, OPDP or the OGEC were creating problem in, in going to court. Others were threatening some of us, where or not do you go uh, taking the government to court? Daniel, how, how, how? how do you go to court and take the government? So in, in the process, I, we had challenges, but thank God we had very strong women, especially, I can uh, say that who kept saying, please continue fighting on. We are behind you. We'll pray for you. We'll support you. And 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 by then, the youth didn't know what was going on. And some of them even were writing funny things on social media by then. And, and, and then later on, when I explained, now I have a very big support from the youth. They write very positive stories about what we are doing. And when we continued until we went to the hearing in Addis Ababa in 2014, then in November twenty seven and twenty eight we we had a hearing going on and then the OG realized that it was time that we fight for our rights. So the the, the, the case realized that the OG had something, so they say, Can you go for amicable settlement? Now the community said no, amicable settlement is not good for us. That was twenty fifteen. And the government started giving very flimsy reasons. And they said, we need all of GIG to have identity cards. We need all these. Remember, not all of GIG had even birth certificates, all this they needed. But in the process, we realized, no, why are we being asked for birth certificates? Nobody in this country has been asked for birth certificates for the sake of his or our own land. This is our GIG land. And we cannot be asked for birth certificate. We cannot be asked for things which we feel it is our right. So and and then they, they they were saying no we don't want PDP to represent Ogier we don't want the lawyers we don't want this then we say then who are you going to negotiate with they say no we they want to negotiate with the Ogier Council of Elders which was not really a well established structured setup in in the Ogier community because it was still within the clan setup so we we said no then when the court realized there was no amicable settlement they said now let's go for full judgment. And um, that is when now uh, it took us to uh, May 2017, 26 May 2017, that is when now uh, the Ogie case were ruled in the favor of the Ogie community. And the, the Kenyan government were asked to proceed on and do the implementation within six months in some parts. And then they would have what you call reparation. That reparation would have, reparation will be, will have uh, a hearing for reparation coming June this year. And, and then we'll be able now to have a proper roadmap on how Ogiek, the Ogiek case or how the Ogiek case would be implemented in Kenya. So, so all these challenges, of course, in the process of implementation, the Kenyan government formed what you call a task force to look into the Ogiek case. And this task force was formed in 2017. And then the first one, it ended prematurely in 2018. Another one was formed in 2018 which ended in 2020, and they presented a report which has never been made public to date, despite even taking uh, issues from the Ogie community, from academia, from civil society. They didn't bring the report after the Minister for Environment was given the report. He has never made the report into public, and we are still waiting. We have requested. We want to know what the government has Already integrated, as far as implementation of the Ogier case is concerned. In the process of this, some of us, as human rights defenders and people, we have received several threats from land grabbers, from the people who who took Ogier land. Fortunately, the Kenyan government, through the police, were able to rescue us by doing the investigation, especially the threats of them who wanted to get me killed. And, and they started, they did the investigation and it subsided. And the reason was they felt like I become an abandonment into the issue of Mao and that I'm interfering as far as they are concerned in the issues of Mao. And, and, and not only that, some of the officers I'm working with, their houses were burned down. And then later on, we had also conflict coming in within Mao. The government were trying to evict people. That this part of where you are is uh, a conservation area that we should wait for the government to implement the Ogie case. This has created all this. And then you cannot also miss, there have been also a group, uh, a splinter group within the Ogie community, unfortunately, who felt that uh, this case is delaying so much. They want a shortcut, and they thought they should work close to the government to get this implemented. And and they are there, and they have become even uh, more or less like betraying the, the, the leadership of our gay community for their own gains, which is, to us, it is normal, but we the, the struggle continues.
1: Yes, as you say, the struggle continues, and wow, so many barriers and challenges that have come up. So I guess international frameworks, legal frameworks, regional frameworks, domestic frameworks, there's all these laws and frameworks that can be used to claim rights, to realize rights. And governments, they sign these documents and they pledge that they will enforce it, but then they don't. So in terms of this process of trying to win a case through legal mechanisms, through the legal tools, what have been your thoughts about how these systems are kind of set up for people to claim their rights?
0: The... Kenyan government are a signatory to the African Charter. And the African Charter is the one which formed the part of the African Court and the African Commission. Unfortunately, it is sad that they are unable to respect the same protocols or conventions or charters they are signatory to. And yet the, the Kenyan constitution says that if we are signatory to any uh, protocol or convention, anywhere, it, it it is going to make it clear that the Kenyan government must respect that particular protocol. So unfortunately the issue of mainstreaming or rather the the issue of implementing what they claim to be or the signatories we are talking about is now what is making life very hard. Because they seem not to have a way of ensuring these particular laws are properly implemented. So that kind of feedback mechanism uh, which of course what made our geek stronger is when we used to have feedback mechanism to ensure we report back whatever they, 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 that we have been told by either by court or by our lawyers.
1: Yes, and so you spoke about at the end how the task force was established, but they didn't reveal the findings of their report. Could you also speak about like who is on this task force, and does that include representation from the Ogiek people?
0: Interesting. That's a nice one. These task forces which have been formed, not once, the issue of Ogiek has not had one task force. Even before we won the case, there has been task forces which had been formed one was called Mal Task Force, which had an issue of implementing the, the Ogiek issue. Unfortunately, that one also was never implemented, but the report was made public. Uh, the one for Mal Task Force, which had Ogiek representation by then, never made any any impact because there was no proper implementation. They formed an implementation team called a Interim Coordinated Secretariat, which Again, for the Council of Elders to try and implement, or rather settle the Ogiec issue once and for all. By then, we had gone to court. I remember, since I was in that committee, I was told in 2009 and 2010, Daniel, why do you still want to be in this, and yet uh, you have taken the government to court? I said. Be it if, if you don't need me here, I'm just ready mm-hmm. to, to return or to, 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 to go back or, or resign from this position. But the community say, no, we cannot, without uh, Daniel being here, we cannot have this representation of the community or the Council of Elders. But now the second one, after the winning of the case, the task forces which was formed after 2017, those are the ones which I want to to underline, is that there was never a representation of the Ogui community. The people who are in the task force, the people who are especially having direct link with the government, or rather they have people within the government who are able to appoint them. Any appointments, sorry to say, mostly in my country, most of them are people either they are in good books with the government or they are in good books with some specific big person within the government. Those are the people who will get chances to be appointed to such uh, task forces because it is being remunerated well and they are being taken care of well. So there is no way they could have uh, an Ogiek or an indigenous person being in those task forces. The last one had members who are either aligned to the CS or, or, or cabinet secretary or to the president or deputy president or the people whom, who are very important in this country. But um, we never had. We requested and said, could we have an Ogegos also being there? But nobody was able to hear us. But instead, we said, we will not relent. We'll continue and even make our presentation to the task force. And actually, on the sixth on the on the sixth of February um, 2019, we made a very strong delegation of making a presentation to the task force, which was headed by Dr. Robert Kibugi. Which we made and said, these are the demands of the Ogier community, and we listed 15 points. We told them we need the Ogier, we need ancestral land, we need our communion land. We don't need. Is subdivided, but we needed our communion land. We needed also to be given a chance uh, to to make decision of our forest. We also needed access and benefit sharing mechanism properly uh, stated in areas where the government feel they should have instead of having a gig. And and also we also underscored and said the the full implementation of the case and even compensation for the years which we have served and violated. And, and even we should have a monument to, to, to really show that the, the government have to, to give or give an apology for the many years they have suffered uh, being evicted, being thrown out, some of them missing school because the schools were closed down. But in, in this way, we actually felt that the task forces cannot make any sense if they don't include the Ogiev community, or they don't include indigenous communities, or persons, or people who have interest in respect, on in respecting human rights.
1: Right. So, in terms of, as you mentioned, what reparations would look like for you, uh, very important to share that. But also this point that this was the first indigenous peoples' rights issue to be handled by the African Court, so it sets a precedence, right?
0: Exactly.
1: Yes, it's also very important that way. And so, as we have been talking about to date, it hasn't been implemented. So, what are your feelings at this stage of the process? How are you feeling? You know, as you mentioned, it's been 20 years since you established the Ogev People's Development Program and four years since the ruling. Like, what are the things you are concerned with right now? And what are your hopes for the next steps?
0: Well, one thing that we are not relenting, we are, we are still. Counting that victory will come, doesn't matter how long it will take. We also feel you can never shelve the rights of individuals whose, whose rights are being violated. And yet it has been declared that Ogiek are the indigenous peoples of Kenya. This Ogiek case of 006 of stroke 12 of the African Commission on Human and People's Rights of the African Court is one and being the first ever case to be had by the African court, which talks about communities. So one is that it will go to history that gave won the case, even if they don't implement, the whole world knows that They gave won the case, even if they don't implement, will continue speaking about it, advocating about it, and telling the government to implement this Ogier case. And these delays has been coming, and we, we feel sometimes very frustrated. I know some old elders who have died waiting for this. We have buried many, most recently, even this COVID, and buried people who will have wished to see success and victory and a major celebration for the Yogi community over their case. But as we are talking, Nothing has happened. This has not killed our spirit. I remember when we meet and we make a celebration on twenty sixth may of every year, we commemorate the win of this case by telling the Ganyan government and the world, please let the Ogie have their rights and let them enjoy what is theirs. And I expect that to be done. And we continue advocating by making fact sheets. We are making videos, trying to tell the world. We make statements everywhere, telling the world that the gig needs their rights. We have been ensuring that we fully involve everyone within the community, and even among the indigenous peoples. We send signals to tell them, we want the case, yes. Our case has not been implemented. We need it implemented. So advocacy is still on. We are relenting. We want to ensure it happens.
1: Wonderful. Yes. You know, earlier you mentioned being in New York at the UN tribunal or the UN meetings. In thinking about the role of the UN in terms of kind of being a place that demands accountability or sets standards and principles, what have been your, your thoughts about the role that this kind of international organizations can play or have played? Have you ever been disappointed by maybe the limits to their power and influence or their role in the situation in terms of the international aspect of yes. this?
0: Yes, I've been uh, many times disappointed. But uh, in other times, I'm also happy that I'm able to make statements. But to me, some of these negotiated agreements, which have no penalties or other There's nothing they can do to a country like Kenya, who unfortunately are not even signatory to to, to the UN dream. But still, they send a member of the government to be a member of the permanent forum, a a, a forum they don't believe in, and yet they have a representation. And uh, one only success, which, of course, I cannot say 100% that, these are only places you make your statement. Sometimes they make it known on, on media or public media, but they never change or rather influence Kenya in any way to do what Kenya doesn't want to do. The only issue which we, we are fortunate about is there was a visit by special rapporteur some years back called Seven Hagen, came to Kenya. I'm told he's late now. And he took the the situation, he visited even our office, it was still new then, and even went to the community and he saw for himself that the Special rapporteur was able to take back the information back to the UN. But I don't know what happened after that, whether the government are being told to do it, but uh, the impact is very minimal. It's only that there are avenues to advocate for the issues facing the, the community. For instance, we, have, we also have, whenever there are threats, we get a chance to write our our, our issues to the, to the indigenous uh, organizations or indigenous mechanisms and special rapporteur in charge of defenders, uh, again, those who are struggling, and those special rapporteur in, in charge of indigenous peoples. All these things are there, but I say it like just African court or African commission they still not seems they don't have a very powerful mechanism or way to push the Kenyan government apart from writing letters, telling the Kenyan government, please do this. But sometimes if they don't comply, we we don't know what next.
1: Yes, yes, it's very um, frustrating and challenging. Earlier we spoke a little bit about climate change and conservation. Is that a big worry for you in terms of the crisis of climate change and the impact that it's having on the Mount Forest, but also just generally in the world in Kenya? And what have been kind of your thoughts around the effects that will have on your homeland, on your community? Yes, uh,
0: climate change is it's a global issue, and it is affecting all of us in, in different ways. Uh, for 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 us. Um, if the destruction which is going on in Mao Forest Complex is not being curtailed or gapped, there will still be a challenge and it will affect people downstream, including the, the lakes around which are fed by waters from Mao, which are right now, the, 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 the lakes have become flooded. There are a lot of issues happening. So in, in, in the process, it is impacting a lot to many people and even to, to the communities because the, the change of rain patterns, the change of everything else is affecting us and those who are also being supported by the waters or by the big, the big water tower of more forest complex. So, so it's something which is affecting us and it's, it's really a challenge.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just as a clarification, I think, maybe for the listeners, so in this time, in these past four years where you still haven't seen the implementation of the ruling, is it that evictions are ongoing and that the threats are ongoing? What is the status of living in this in-between stage of the lack of implementation?
0: Of course, uh, it is all frustration. One, it is affecting the community because most recently, in, 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 in 2020, the government, even amid these COVID-19 issues, they started saying they want to start demarcating part of Eastern Mau, and they want to come up with a communal land, and even without due regards to the African court, and even due regard to the reparations, which we are still waiting. But instead, they wanted to do their own way, and report back to the African Court that we have actually settled all issues. And and uh, I mean, when this thing was going on, July uh, part of June, July, there was eviction going on in Istanbul, and we had uh, almost one over one thousand uh, gear community affected by the eviction, and we had to go to the court here in Kenya and say why why are we uh, being evicted, and we are waiting for implementation. Of the African Court, because we couldn't go back, but because it was being done by the by the administration here he, here in Kenya, and especially here in in, in Nakuru, and and it, it, it was sad that they didn't want even to hear what we wanted to tell them. I remember taking the community to see the uh, the, the regional commissioner to tell him, please, can you hear us? Can you wait? For the case to be fully implemented, and also can we wait for the report of the task force? Because the task force of course should have given us a, a roadmap of what to do, but nothing was happening. So the community now, even uh, they were being told not to do any kind of uh, farming or anything because you know people have left from hunting and gathering to subsistence farming, but they were being told no, stop planting maize and because there were conflicts going on. And these conflicts were caused by issues and frustration which were being uh, done by the government themselves by splitting and saying, we want everybody to be settled. The, gig and the young people felt like, we want the case. Why are we being settled by everybody else? All these were interfering and making the government, the, the, the community feel that their rights are still being violated, even after winning the case. What kept the gay community over the years to be together is that there have been unity because we have always created what you call a feedback mechanism where we have to tell the community what is going on every time. Secondly, the use and the involvement of women in the struggle made this struggle to become a success because it was not done only by men. Women also came in. Also young people started coming in at the latter stage, not all Ogiek were supporting the struggle, especially those who might have been compromised. But uh, we, we are always saying we are grateful to the Ogiek women and the youths and for the support. And of course, many, all elders and those who have passed on when they were struggling for the rights of the Ogiek community.
1: When you speak about the role of women, could you maybe say a bit more in terms of their power and their encouragement to continue this fight and not stop until your rights are realized?
0: The women kept on through their folk songs, through, through, through the, the way they, they present their issues. They are never compromised. I remember even last year when the Ugeg youth were being beaten by police, or rather being arrested because of struggle and evictions going on. The women themselves had to demonstrate the courage they had, not any person could do that time because the government uh, machinery was so strong, you could easily be ar- arrested. But they kept moving. And then again, they keep speaking. And, and, and one thing you should know is that women are not easy compromised like men, especially in the countries where corruption is, is, is reigning. So this has really made it very, very strong because one, they feel for their children. They feel for the future of their children. So that's what kept us moving. And they kept telling us, please don't relent. We are behind you, we'll always support you.
1: Mm-hmm, very inspiring. Maybe just as a more personal note, You've been a leader in this. You've been through so much. You're also the executive director of the Ogiek People's Development Program. You know, being in that position of leadership, what have been your feelings of maybe responsibility in terms of being a leader in this struggle and continuing the work and having the sustained energy?
0: Uh, one thing I can say is that one of the greatest feeling which has been in my heart is that the Ogiek community seems to have been, for some time, I've been having a vacuum of leadership. And, and, and uh, when we started and they started recognizing my leadership, they, they another issue came in, they, they also focus and think I can solve all their problems, which is very difficult. People, when they have any kind of challenge, issues of, of, of paying fees for their children, issues of health issues, people in hospital, maternity and all that, they, they come back to me as a leader and say, hey, can we support us? They, they see me as solving all their problems, which is not possible. And and sometime again, you, you find that the the, the, the the political class do not like me because they look at me sometime to be anti-government, which is not the case. I even meet several government officers and I tell them, I am not fighting anybody, I'm just asking to be given my rights. I have not went and picked any gun or anything. I've only been asking, can we have Hogi get their rights? And and, and, and in this case, you are you are bogged down with issues. And you see with, also you find that you, you have a challenge with the family because you spend a lot of time doing a lot of things for the community. Sometimes minimal time with your family members. And this also is a challenge, but you always try when, especially you have a supportive family members, who knows why you are doing what you're doing. Because it's more or less of a calling. It is not really in terms of a job, but it's more of a calling and an interest and passion to see people set free from these kinds of uncalled for violations. We have the rights of learning now is being challenged by others not forgetting who are the owners of Mao. The pure ownership is for the Ogi community because they are the owners of Mao.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I feel very grateful for your time and for sharing your your story and your reflections with us. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. Sava. thanks for taking the time to listen to this frustrating story at times. I just call upon the international community to speak to the Kenyan government and tell them to respect the rights of our community and allow them their rights to Mao as their home and that we they should not only talk of conservation, they should talk of the owners of the forest they are talking about because we are not only talking about conservation, we should also say who were there before and who have been there taking care of this Mao But they should also take into consideration the indigenous knowledge we have for conservation so that the future of more forest complex is assured. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you. And again, a big thank you to you, Daniel, for spending your hour with us and speaking with us. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in and supporting the podcast I invite you to join in on the conversation by going to our website, hitting the send us a voice message button and sharing some of your thoughts with us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast player, rate and review past episodes, and share our conversations with your friends. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter on our website and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.